Our New Testament reading this morning comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might through his poverty become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Um, We're glad that you're here. You are the brave few who had the courage to navigate through Bridge Pedal, and I'm glad that you made it. Uh, I don't have any extra spiritual credit to dispense for that, but I hope that this will be an encouraging time for you. And if you're new uh, to in town, if you're visiting with us, we're going through a series on the spiritual disciplines, spiritual rhythms. What are the things that we can cultivate in our life that lead us towards Jesus and that actually transform us to be more like him? And one of those is giving. And we looked at this text in a three-part series about four or five years ago during one of our many times of financial scarcity. And it was in a way to not only address that scarcity, but to try and build in this discipline, this ongoing discipline in our life as a church. And I've always wanted to revisit this passage outside of one of those times of scarcity. We're not flush with cash, but we're doing okay. Our giving is pretty much keeping in track with what we expected. And so now I think we have this opportunity to look at this text outside of an appeal for giving and more as an appeal for growth, as an appeal for us to instill this practice, this discipline, this rhythm, if you will, into our lives in such a way that we grow to be more fully like Jesus. And giving is one of the ways that we can do this. So as we begin to look at this, let me pray for us as we get started. Dear Jesus, I pray for everyone who is here, wherever they're coming from this morning, wherever they are on their spiritual journey, if they're eager this morning to learn, if they're eager to find out ways that they can 
better be in touch with their union with Jesus and with their, their life in him. Others here this morning are without doubt um, disbelieving, wondering if this all makes sense. Maybe we're finding ourselves back in the church for the first time in a very long time, and we have anxiety because we have a history that maybe is not so beautiful. Maybe we're here just as a visitor. Someone has brought us, and we're wondering what we're doing at church on a Sunday morning when we could be at the bridge pedal or in the sun. Lord, I pray that wherever we find ourselves on the spiritual spectrum, that you would speak to us, that you would speak grace over us, and that you would invite us into a life that is deeply whole, that is deeply human, that is deeply connected with you and with one another. And we pray that you would do that not only as we sing, not only as we read Scripture, but as we listen to these words. Would you be with these words when you inhabit them? These people don't need to hear from me, but they need to hear from you. And I pray that you would speak through me to address all of our needs. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the great novel, The Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky tells a story about a wicked peasant woman who died without leaving behind a single good deed. Everything she did, she did for herself alone, seizing everything she could for herself, often through illegitimate means and uh, through hurtful ways. And she dies, and the devil seizes her and takes her down into the lake of fire. So her guardian angel stood and is wondering, what good deed could she possibly have done? Could he remember in this life that, she, that he could represent her, her to God? And he remembered once she pulled up an onion in her garden and gave it to a beggar woman. And so God answered the plea of the angel. And it says, you take that onion then and hold it out to her in the lake. And if you can pull her out of the lake, let her come to paradise. But if the onion breaks, then the woman must stay where she is. So the angel runs with great glee and happiness and holds out to this onion to her and says, come, catch hold, and I'll pull you out. And he begins very delicately and very cautiously to pull her out of the lake. And when the other people in the lake saw that she was being drawn out, they began catching hold of her and grabbing hold of her legs so that they could be pulled out. And so she begins kicking them. I'm not to be, I'm the one to be pulled out, not you. It's my onion, not yours. And as soon as she said this, the onion broke and the woman fell into the lake and the angel wept and went away. It's pretty unsettling, isn't it? And let's just say that Dostoevsky is not laying out a biblical theology of the afterlife. This isn't how things happen. But what is he saying? What I think is he is saying is that not that the woman simply needed more good deeds and then God would welcome her into heaven. What she was missing was far more profound. What she needed was to recognize her deserving mentality that caused her to say, mine, about her resources. Others were seen as competitors rather than objects of love, and that's why she began to kick at them, because they couldn't receive what she thought was hers. Paul says in this passage, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He says, interestingly, I'm not commanding you but I'm testing you. 
I'm testing you, testing whether you understand what I've just said to you. He's not giving us a command, but a test. He says, I'm actually comparing your love to the love of other churches. Now, that can't be right, can it? We're not supposed to compare ourselves to other people. But Paul is saying that this church down the street gets it. They're begging for opportunities to serve and to give. What about you? This seems to go against everything we think we know about Christian charity, that it shouldn't be done out of guilt or compulsion, and certainly not trying to outdo one another. What I think is going on here is that, first and foremost, Paul is not simply making an appeal for more giving. That's implied, and that's part of it, but that's not the the thing he's after foremost. What he's after is a diagnosis. He is giving this church a diagnostic tool for their spiritual health. Paul doesn't simply want to meet a need of an impoverished church. He wants this church to see that need and to eagerly give because they see themselves as having been given to by Jesus. Giving in Scripture, charity, service in Scripture is so much more than that which simply allows the church to function. It's a diagnostic tool of what really has the heart of the church, what really has our individual hearts. Do you want to see whether you're spiritually healthy or not? Look at your giving. Look at your checkbook. Look at your resources and how they're spent. He wants this church to have an eager willingness to give, to sacrifice, because it's a sign that they have a spiritual vibrancy in the life of their church. You see, as an apostle, Paul could have simply commanded Here's what you have to give. You see, there's this great need, this famine that's happening in Jerusalem, and I need you to give X amount, and I'm going around to every church, and they're giving X amount so that we can alleviate that. He could do that. He has the authority to do that as an apostle, but that's a tax. That's simply a a command. His ace in the hole is verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. All, Christian, all giving that is genuinely Christian is a response to the recognition that everything that one has is a gift from God. It's a voluntary response to the inescapable logic of the goodness of God himself. He says, last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. He's pointing out something in their history and commending them for it. When this need became known to you, you guys got busy and made a collection. You started an offering. But sometime in the subsequent year, something has happened. The, it's not in our passage, but what's going on is a, a result of famine in Jerusalem in the 40s A.D., and he's talking about the severe need in the church in Jerusalem. And raising money for this need is one of Paul's primary jobs as he goes around to these churches. He's trying to instill in the Gentile church this, this passion for giving and for supporting other churches who are in need. And it appears that this Corinthian church started this collection, but then their enthusiasm lagged. And Paul is encouraging them to finish the work. Now as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you excel in this gracious work also. And 
some commentators say that Paul is, in a sense, taunting them a little bit. Another thing that we're not supposed to do to one another, right? But he's saying, okay, you guys have got it all down. You've got the love thing down. You've got the knowledge thing down. You've got the speaking thing down. But do you have the giving thing down? You excel in a lot of areas, but are you ready to give? Seneca, who is a Stoic philosopher, writing around the same time that this is happening, says, for since in the case of a benefit, the chief pleasure of it comes from the intention of the bestower, who by his very hesitation has shown that he has made his bestowal unwillingly. Therefore, he has not given, but has failed to withstand the effort to extract it. Those who give unwillingly, even Seneca, the Stoic pagan philosopher, haven't really given. Those who give unwillingly haven't given biblically. They've just given in. Don't give because you failed to withstand the duty or the guilt, but give because ultimately Jesus has entered into your story with grace and with peace. He says, see that you excel in this gracious work also. Giving is a practice of grace. It's a response to grace. And here's where we get to spiritual formation. Because as you give, not only are you alleviating a need, but you're allowing the Holy Spirit to work in your life to align yourself with that person. It's an act of solidarity, and you're saying that this person has needs just like I do and just like I did. And how did Jesus respond to that need? He met it. Out of his riches, he became poor so that we could become rich. And as we give, we'll see our heart becoming even more intertwined with Jesus and those he loves and those he longs to serve. And over time, we'll begin to learn how, in a disciplined, intentional way, to limit our consumption, not only so that we can serve others, but so that we can be set free, so that we can be liberated. At a party given by a billionaire on Shelter Island in New York, Kurt Vonnegut tells his friend Joseph Heller that their host, a hedge fund manager, had made more money in a single day than everything that Joseph Heller had earned off of his breakthrough novel, Catch-22, over its whole history. And Heller responds, yes, but I have something that he will never have. I have enough. What about us? Don't we wonder, don't we fear that if we really stretch ourselves, if we really give sacrificially, that maybe we won't have enough? Aren't we worried about having enough in that perspective that if we give to someone else that we're going to have enough money at the end of the month? Does God want us to have enough? When we open up our wallets to demonstrate that our hope isn't in our resources, what will become of me? What will become of my family? Well, Paul gives us comfort here. He tells us in verse 13 that our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. And he says, again, the goal is equality. What he's saying is not that if you're a Christian that you should live in squalor, but instead that nothing we have is more important than anything that others don't have. Did you get that? Nothing that we have is more important than anything that others don't have. He's not giving an 
artificial equilibrium where everyone must have the exact same standard of living, but that one's material abundance does become a source of shame when someone next to them is going without. The Protestant reformer John Calvin says, there is not enjoined upon us an equality of such a kind as to make it unlawful for the rich to live in any degree of greater elegance than the poor. But an equality is to be observed thus far, that no one is allowed to go hungry, and no one is to hoard his abundance at the expense of others. The poor man's allotment may be coarse food and a spare diet. The rich man's may be more abundant in its portion, it is true, but at the same time in such a way that they live temperately and are not wanting to others. What I think John Calvin is saying, and I think it's connected to what Paul is saying, is that if you're a Christian, your life is intertwined with other people's, that their needs, their burdens, their financial lack becomes yours in some way, that you are to take ownership of it as a church and as individuals. Verse 15, he says a little bit more. The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. And he's quoting Exodus 16 here, talking about this miraculous feeding of the Israelites as they were in the desert for 40 years, that God provided for them. He didn't provide rich food and lamb and all of this wonderful stuff, but he did provide the basics of, that they needed for life. And he talks about this giving of manna that would be given every day, that the Israelites would go out and they would gather it only for that particular day. And some were unable to go and gather it to feed themselves. Some were uh, crippled in some way. Some were elderly. Some were young. And so they depended upon other people to go and gather their share for them. And as those people came back to the camp, they divided it, and everyone was given what they needed to get by for that day. Now, there was a little catch because Moses told them no one is to keep any of it until morning. You couldn't store it. You couldn't hoard it in case the supply might cut off. You couldn't have this big storage tank that you could go to if God decided one day, well, I'm not going to give them manna today. And I think in that situation, I would probably say, you know, this is the pits. This stinks. I'm done with this religion. But what God wanted to depict in a very concrete way is that the Israelites were utterly dependent upon him and that he was trustworthy. So if they stored it up, if they kept it more than the day, the manna would actually decay and putrefy, and it would begin to stink. And isn't that so symbolic of some of the things that we often hoard, that we stake our lives upon? You know, what if you had supposedly an incurable disease? And, you know, I as a pharmaceutical representative or a doctor said, you know, I have a drug that will entirely cure your situation. You will be completely well, and you'll never struggle with this disease again, but it will cost you everything. It will cost your whole savings account. You'll have to clean out your IRA. you have to move back in with your parents. You have to sell your car. you have to eat meager foods for the rest of your life because this will cost you everything. So, you know, I'm sure you probably don't want to do that. You would say, are you crazy? Of course I want to do that because what good are all of those things if I'm dead? 
if I can't enjoy them. Give me the medicine. I'll live in poverty, but I'll live. Paul is telling us that there are riches that will impoverish you and that there's a poverty in which you can find riches. When you realize that you're spiritually poor, when you realize that you're impoverished, but that God made you rich, that he gave you life, that he gave you salvation, that everything begins to be referenced in terms of this medicine of grace that he has given you. You see, the Macedonians that Paul referenced were dirt poor. They had nothing physically, nothing tangibly that they owned. But, verse 2, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify they gave as much as they were able and even gave beyond that. They gave, even though they were materially poor, they gave in recognition of their spiritual abundance, their spiritual wealth, because they knew the grace of their Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for their sake he became poor, so that through his poverty they could become rich. Your real riches, the riches of the church in Corinth, the riches of the church in Macedonia, the riches of the church in Jerusalem, their real riches lie in the fact that God has paid all of their most significant debts. Your riches lie, if you are a Christian, in the fact that God has paid off all of your most important debts. And until you see that, until that becomes, begins to seep down into the center of who you are, then you'll generally not give sacrificially because what if? What if God isn't really trustworthy? What if he gives up on me? What if the manna runs out at the end of the week? You won't give sacrificially. You'll give less than you probably should. And until you see the riches of Jesus becoming yours, you won't give joyfully either. You'll give to feel better about yourself. You'll give to pay the tax. You'll give to meet the standard and only that. But as you do, as you begin to see Jesus' riches deposited into you, then you can begin to give, not because giving is what God wants from you, but what God wants to do in you. He wants you to be whole. He wants you to be free. He wants you to find your joy in giving and sacrificing and serving other people. Why? Because that's where his joy is found. And he's made you to be like him. One of the most vital and one of the most underutilized doctrines of the church is the Trinity. And that is that God has forever existed in relationship that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always existed in a loving and intertwined and self-giving relationship. And giving is God's way of inviting us to share in that divine life, in the joy of the Trinity. God receives joy when He gives, and He sends His Son to give of Himself to all who are broken, all who are lonely, all who are marginalized, all who are impoverished of heart, all who are on the sidelines of happiness. And he says, I give you myself. I give you the greatest gift I can think of, and that is my son. My life for yours, my riches for your poverty. 
And those who have received this type of love are in the position to give, not begrudgingly, but joyfully. You know, friends, there, there are a lot of things that you can do with your money. And many of them will provide you a return on that investment. You invest in this fund, you invest in this house, and you will be able to monitor the type of returns that you get from that investment. You'll get a little letter or an email that tells you your money has grown this much in this particular month. You can monitor it. And you'll be able to know exactly what's returning to you on that investment. Giving to others, giving to the church is nothing like this. In fact, it's ludicrous. It's a ludicrous way to invest your money because you can't monitor it. You can't really see tangible returns. You can't get a statement at the end of the month to see this is how your investment has grown and changed lives. And also, by the way, you may not agree with everything that your church does, and you're still called to give. It's a ludicrous way to invest your money, and yet it's what God wants of us. But see, what you do get in return, what does show up, not on the monthly statement, but in your eternal rewards and in your joy and in your gladness is that you get to join Jesus in his way of giving. You get to participate in what he wants to do in the world. You see, he gives up everything and invests his life in people like you and like me. Terrible, ludicrous investments. Why would he want to invest in us? What return do we offer him? Not a whole lot. We're fickle, we're undependable, we're calculating, and yet what the Bible says is that because of the joy set before him, you and I being that joy, Jesus went to the cross, that he said, my life for yours, and therefore giving is a way that we emulate him, a way that we grow into him, the way that our lives become conformed more to his. And so I invite you to consider that as you think about giving in the future, not just financially, but in your way of serving, in all of your resources and how you think about them, that you think about them through the lens of Jesus' work for you and through the lens of the people sitting right next to you. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that um, in town would be a place that is life-giving, a place that is bringing about the change Uh, that you want to bring into our community, um, first of all, by changing us, first of all, by making us glad, joyful, cheerful people who have been given so much by you that we can't stop from giving to others. Give us direction. Let us be wise with our money. Let us be good stewards that we do have to provide for our own welfare and for our family, perhaps, but that we also are called to provide for others. And I pray that as we do that, you would give us a heart that resembles yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.